I think it's really important to understand that this 18-year-old shooter, 18 years old, had had absorbed this theory so so much. He posted a creed before the attack. They don't want the attorney general to lead the investigation, but she can be a part of it. And I, I asked them to allow her a seat at the table because whether she's leading it or a part of it, she can have a lot to do with shaping all of our schools in Michigan and making every single one of our kids safer. There was a glowing object that we stopped and watched on Lake St. Clair, and, and, and it was dark, and it moved in a straight line. Then it hovered, and then it shot up at a 90-degree angle. We're talking instantaneous. You're listening to Pod Suey, the week's top stories served a la carte. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Last weekend was a deadly one with multiple mass shootings in every part of the country. One dead, five wounded in a church shooting in California. Two dead, three hospitalized in Dallas. And on Saturday, an 18-year-old suspect drove hours from his home to a supermarket in a predominantly black neighborhood near Buffalo, killing 10, injuring three others in what authorities are calling a racially motivated attack. The gunman, who live-streamed the attack from a helmet cam, posted a 180-page manifesto citing great replacement theory. Carolyn Normandin from the Anti-Defamation League with Guy Gordon. What is the great replacement theory? How old is it? Where did it come from? Well, uh, I think it's really important to understand that this 18-year-old shooter, 18 years old, had had absorbed this theory so so much that he he posted a creed before the attack talking about this 180 Um, pages yes 180 pages the great replacement theory and i use that in quotes it really has its roots in like early 20th century french nationalism but in 2011 um a guy a french writer and critic uh named renaud camus um populated this popularized this in an essay and it was quickly uh, adopted and promoted by the white supremacist movement, uh, particularly in our country. Um, and what it says is it's a conspiracy theory about the impending destruction of the white race, sometimes referred to as white genocide. Um, and this, these white supremacists, their rallying cry, uh, sometimes they refer to it as the 14 words, is we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. This is vile, disgusting, uh, racist uh, bile that has has um, gotten into our society, and it has it has become memorialized by other shooters, shooters that shot up the the, the synagogue in Pittsburgh, and the Walmart in El Paso, and the church in Charleston. New Zealand. This is New this, Zealand. This right. this eighteen year old shooter was also by and by the way, this is not speculation. This is all in his and imagine if if he had been as motivated to write about something positive as he was about this. One hundred eighty pages. Um, a guy could have yeah. uh, sought a master's degree and maybe done something with his life. But we should point out this this demonizes demonizes interracial marriage. Uh, and yeah. they also state that this is being done by a cadre of Jewish elites. So they are equal opportunity haters. They're, they they're, are. <laughs> there is no group that they won't smear here. 
You're you're absolutely right, and it's in, just I I chuckle when you say that, which is it's not a laughing matter. But I often re- I often refer to white supremacists as equal opportunity haters, and we we at ADL have been warning about the dangers of white supremacy and white extremism um, for several years. We've been actively working to disrupt. It we believe that domestic terrorism is a real thing and needs to be addressed. And uh, you're right. Um, it, it you know recently, uh, particularly um, in the United States, this has been linked with anti-Semitism because this idea right. that this conspiracy theory um, is sinister and dangerous and it, it is at the it, it falls at the feet of in the hand it falls at the feet of Jewish people. Well, and he also I, I mean he has talked about this in some of his 4chan posts, his to-do list. Yeah. Uh, on Discord, uh, talks about blaming Jews for scarcity and economic hardship. So he was dealing in a lot of anti-Semitic tropes. How do we get from the normal grievance culture that we've seen uh, like that? I mean, going back to to Father Coughlin here in Detroit and others, to to the to them saying that violence is the solution, that exterminating black people uh, in this young man's case was was the solution. Is that? Part and parcel are is all of it tied to violence as being how you reconcile. There are many many groups that um, that promote promote that. Uh, they're called accelerationists, and the the idea being this is going to happen anyway, so let's just accelerate it and get it over with. Mm-hmm. Um, so anybody who wants to know about these kinds of groups, you can go to the ADL website and you can, um, you know, Google accelerationist or Google, you know, the great replacement theory. Um, it's really important for people to do their homework. You did your homework. You understand what the vile, disgusting nature of what this boy's manifesto was. He was a, an 18-year-old boy. And, you know, posting on the internet right before the attack that his goal was to spread awareness to my fellow whites about the real problems the West is facing and to encourage further attacks. But what do we know about young people like that, Carolyn? How do they get so radicalized so young that they actually will initiate the violence that they believe to be the solution? Okay, so one of the things we know is that white supremacy groups, um, they they target uh, young, disengaged particularly males. Uh, they go out adjacent to college campuses. They set up, they, they, they do something called flyering. They put flyers or stickers all over with sort of like a, a join the brotherhood. Don't be afraid of your whiteness, white power. And it, and it, and the idea is to get like-minded people, particularly disengaged males between the ages of 18 and 28. Um, and they just bombard them with this rhetoric. And part of it is, you know, you have to lay some of the blame at digital media, which ADL has often said, let's let's have digital platforms, you know, put some guideposts in. We are a civil rights organization, and we believe that people have freedom of speech no matter what. However, um, these digital platforms are private companies, and they can put guideposts lines in. And that's what's really needed in terms of the digital space. The baby formula shortage has pushed President Biden to evoke the Defense Production Act and Congress to pass a bill put forth by Senator Debbie Stabenow to loosen restrictions on which formulas can be purchased on federal assistance. 
So how long until we start seeing more formula on the shelves, and how do we get into this mess in the first place? WJR Senior News Analyst Marie Osborne with Paul W. Smith. The first formulas that will begin production will be the specialty brands. Then they'll begin producing Similac and other formulas. The company said it'll take about six to eight weeks for the uh, products to reach store shelves, in some cases maybe even 12 weeks. Some experts say the shortage could last until the end of the year, but the FDA Commissioner Dr. Robert Califf telling NBC he doesn't believe that. We don't expect it to last to the end of of the year uh, by any means. We're taking a number of measures, including getting all the manufacturers to step up, getting the Sturgis plant uh, up and going, but also uh, importing or bringing to bear product that was intended for other countries. Now, there's a lot of reflection taking place about why all this happened. Last October, a whistleblower report was filed with the FDA, but the department didn't act on that information until months later. Dr. Caleb says that they will get to the bottom of what happened there. There will be a full investigation of the timeline. It will do everything possible to correct any um, errors in timing that we had uh, so that we don't repeat uh, any mistakes that may have been made. As for Abbott, they say they've been working on improvements for months. They're updating education, training, safety procedures for employees and visitors, updating protocols regarding water, cleaning, and maintenance procedures at the facility. And one last note, Paul, I heard you talking earlier about this bacteria that was found in the plant. The FDA has found five strains of the chronobacter at that Sturgis facility, but none of them match the outbreak strain. So in other words, what they found in the factory was not the bacteria that was found in the uh, formula that sickened the babies. So the discovery of the five types of the bacteria does, does, however, suggest an ongoing problem at the facility and not just a single incident. So there's more investigation that still has to be done on this. Oh, man, this is a horrific story that's just getting worse. Uh, first of all, there's been... Uh, I don't want to say lying. I'm going to say confusing facts revealed along the way. You just saw Abbott's uh, apology letter the other day. Uh They make it very clear that they voluntarily closed the factory, right? They did, yes. Mm -hmm. But yet we're we're talking about the FDA saying it's okay for them to open and saying from Abbott, back to their turn in this tennis match with our babies in the middle, uh, we can't find any reason why those babies got sick or died, not tied into any of our formula, going back to the FDA saying, just shut up, hurry up, and get open, because we are taking some heat uh, by having this happen in the first place. Well, Doesn't let, that worry anybody? Let me just say that this bacteria, because I did a little reading on this, this bacteria that was found, which is the Chronobacter Sakazaki bacteria, that's actually found in our environment. It's something found naturally in our environment. And so, you know, that's a problem because it's a bacteria that's just out there. They did not find the same bacteria at the factory that they found in the infant formulas that sicken these babies. But they did find problems at the factory. Right. There are problems so at the factory. There are problems, yes. So, and and did they? are they promising us that they, these, are? they will be fixed before they're allowed to ship their product? 
Well, they they promise that they they have a, this is a court agreement. So they have agreed that they are going to make changes in their plan. Again, like I said about uh, regarding the water that they use, uh, uh, the cleanliness of certain areas of the plant. So there's a lot of things that they've agreed to do as the plant reopens. But for moms and dads out there, six to eight weeks, we should see some easing or, of this tension. Certainly 12. in 12 weeks, we should yeah. we should be up to speed. A Michigan judge has granted a temporary injunction against a 1931 law in the books that would outlaw abortion if Roe v. Wade is overturned by the Supreme Court. WJR senior news analyst Chris Renwick on All Talk with Tom Jordan and Kevin Dietz. The judge Tuesday issued that preliminary injunction to plan parenthood of Michigan suit that would halt the enforcement of Michigan's 1931 abortion ban, at least temporarily, should the U.S. Supreme Court overturn Roe v. Wade. Court of Claims Judge Elizabeth Gleitcher noticed in her opinion that Planned Parenthood was likely to succeed on arguments that forced pregnancy is a threat to a woman's constitutional right to bodily integrity and due process. Gleitcher penned, if a woman's right to bodily integrity is to have any real meaning, it must incorporate her right to make decisions about the health events that are most likely to change the course of her life, including pregnancy and childbirth. It's a notch in the wind column for now for groups like Planned Parenthood and the ACLU. Dr. Sarah Wallet is the chief medical officer for Planned Parenthood of Michigan. We filed this lawsuit on April 7th and asked the court to block this law because it is unconstitutionally vague and violates the rights to liberty, bodily integrity, equal protection, and privacy under the Michigan Constitution and state civil rights laws. Meanwhile, Attorney John Birch, who's representing uh, Life to uh, Right to Life Michigan and the Michigan Catholic Conference, says Gleitcher's ruling was issued on incomplete information and, quite frankly, was wrong in her legal conclusion. The judge engaged in an analysis without any advocacy from the other side, and she was demonstrably wrong in her legal conclusions on drawing on precedents, which have absolutely no bearing on pro-life laws. Attorney, Gen- Attorney General Dana Nessel, a Democrat, said she won't appeal Gleicher's order. Nessel, of course, was named as a defendant in the case, and the ruling against her office is a victory for the millions of Michigan women fighting for their rights. Nessel has previously said she would not enforce the state's 1931 law if Roe gets overturned, which bans abortions of all kinds except if the life of the mother is in danger. Meanwhile, the decision was made by a judge who refused to recuse herself from the case after it was reported she previously represented Planned Parenthood and frequently donates to him. The Detroit News reported back in mid-April that a a court clerk distributed a letter which said, upon receiving this assignment, Judge Gleiser asked me to notify all counsel of record that she makes yearly contributions to Planned Parenthood of Michigan, and she represented Planned Parenthood as a volunteer attorney for the ACLU from 1996 to 1997. While Judge Gleiser does not believe this warrants her recusal, and it's certain that she can sit on this case with requisite impartiality and objectivity, she believes that this letter of disclosure is appropriate. So at the time, fellas, she thought maybe she should disclose this information, but she never accused herself. And now she's ruled in flavor of Planned Parenthood. So uh, this isn't the end of the story. I assume there will be some sort of appeal. Oh, no, this is this really is just the beginning. Um, and, and and this is it just happened to be in the court of claims is where this thing started. So, yes, it will be in, in the appeal. Of course, uh, the governor has her lawsuit filed 
uh, to the Michigan Supreme Court. Uh, and so, no, th- this is the, the very beginning. All of these groups, uh, Right to Life, obviously the Michigan Catholic Conference, uh, they're still very much in the middle of this. This is just kind of the first the first uh, stone to fall, I suppose. Well, you know, D- Dana Nessels, she essentially bowed out of this case. She didn't want to defend it. And the judge mm-hmm. knew that. The plaintiff, Planned Parenthood, knew that. So no one was defending this lawsuit. Uh, wasn't that a lone reason for the judge to rule in favor of Planned Parenthood in this case? Certainly, that that plays a huge role. And and remember, Dana Nessel said that not only was she not going to uh, uh, uphold the law of 1931 on abortion here in Michigan. She said if, if that were to take effect, she wouldn't prosecute those people. But but she said she wasn't going to defend the case. And she did say, well, if the legislature wants to defend the case, they have every right to do so. And the legislature decided against it as well. So it really was th- – there really was no uh, obstacle in the way for this judge to to make this ruling. So, no, as as – Dana Nessel has come out and said this is a huge win for for women and their reproductive rights. Uh, no, there was no real fight put up here by the state. In that 1931 law, two key components. You mentioned the first that what it makes abortion a felony unless it's done to protect the life of a pregnant person. The other is uh, it criminalizes the selling or advertising of medications that could induce an abortion. If, if Roe v. Wade, if the Supreme Court were to decide now, uh, what would where would we be in Michigan with this ruling? Would we would we still follow Ro- Roe v. Wade until uh, this worked its way through the courts? Do you think? So. Uh, it, it, if Roe was overturned today, it's my understanding that without this 1931 law, there would be no there would be no law outlawing abortions in the state of Michigan. So if it were to be overturned today, if Roe were to be wiped off the books and all of the the powers and decisions on abortion would be handed back to the states uh, with this ruling today, as we stand right now at this moment, my understanding is that. That law essentially would be null and void and, and wouldn't be uh, w- wouldn't be uh, able to be utilized the way that it had been previously. The Oxford Community School Board voted to conduct a third party independent investigation into last November's shooting at a school board meeting this week after initially declining to do so until after civil and criminal litigation. Lori Bourgeau is an Oxford Village Council member and an Oxford High School parent who has been calling for an investigation, and she reacts to the news with Paul W. Smith. This week we had uh, Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonald on. She said, you don't have to wait. They, they can go ahead and do this investigation. There's no reason to wait until all the other uh, legal uh, stuff happens and, and cases, etc., etc. Lori, congratulations. This proves that persistence, hard work... And sticking to it has paid off. You must feel good. Good morning, Lori. It's Paul. Thank you. Yeah, it is. What a win. Um, This is everything we've been hoping for. Um, Start that investigation right away and couldn't be happier. What do you think was the final straw that made them actually change their mind and to reverse their decision to delay an independent review into those events surrounding the November 30th tragedy. I have to say, uh, I think the school board kind of buried the lead on um, the big news, which, you know, we saw in the agenda that they hired a new law firm. What they didn't tell us is that 
that law firm will be the firm representing them going forward. They will no longer be using the same lawyer that they were using before who was making these decisions. And um, that lawyer will still be involved. The insurance company still employs them. But I believe he was the reason. He was the leading factor of those decisions. I think they heard the community loud and clear, stopped and looked at what was holding them back, what wasn't allowing them to make that choice, and said, all right, new lawyers. You know, they they said as much as what you just said, Lori Bourgeau. They they have heard you. So a big factor, as I opened with, and it's true, a big factor was that you guys were persistent and you stayed with it. You weren't going to just say, um, okay, we understand you don't want to do this until all the other legal things are cleaned up. You kept saying, why can't we get a, a review as quickly as possible so we can assure the students and their parents, yourself, uh, that everything's going to be okay because we have fixed whatever problems we became aware of and needed to fix. And they they did that. They they went along with that. They heard you, and it, it probably helped. Maybe the pressure was on to hear Karen McDonald, the Oakland County prosecutor, saying, wait a second, there's no reason to wait for all that legal stuff. And then for them to go and hire Varnum, which is a Grand Rapids-based law firm, and Guy Post Solutions, the mm-hmm. independent investigations firm that's based in New York to conduct the review. I think University of Michigan Board of Regents had hired Guidepost to help address the university's response to their problems that they had. Um, this shows that they actually, at the time they were saying they were waiting, it looks like, Lori, that they were actually investigating, trying to answer your questions and answer your requests and do the right thing. Yeah, you know, it's hard to uh, not be humble, but I believe you're absolutely right. I mean, we we pushed and we pushed and we couldn't stop. And um, it it you can be heard when you keep going. Uh, the everything that our group of parents has done. I mean, yes, you've seen us speaking with people, but the research we've put in. We've got contacts of school experts, uh, school safety experts, companies like the NCSS, um, contacts with leading threat assessment experts. And we're doing a lot of work in that way as well. And I just hope that the school board will continue to listen to us because the contacts we have can really, really make a difference for all of our children, even the ones that aren't in this district yet, who can benefit from from what we're hearing and learning. The only thing I heard, and maybe you can tell me what the resolution of this was, if there was a resolution, that uh, that some people said last night, from what I picked up, that the, the why are you hiring a company, why are you paying a company, when the Michigan Attorney General, Dana Nessel, has offered twice now to conduct uh, a third-party review. Um, How did you guys resolve that? Not exactly a resolve. However, when I spoke, I did ask about that. Um, in the past, the board president has told me that they don't want the attorney general to lead the investigation, but she can be a part of it. And I, I asked them to allow her a seat at the table because whether she's leading it or a part of it, she can have a lot to do with shaping all of our schools in Michigan and making every single one of our kids safer. The Oxford High School class of 2022 graduated at a ceremony at Pine Knob Thursday night. 
They left two seats open for Justin Schilling and Madison Baldwin, who lost their lives in the shooting. Congress held their first hearings on UFOs in 50 years this week, urging people who have had encounters to come forward so that the government can better investigate them without the stigma and public shaming often attached to such sightings. Guy Gordon shares his close encounter with his listeners, and his listeners share theirs right back. It was a night, uh, like a spring night in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, when I saw something flash across the sky that took a 90-degree turn instantly. No human being could have withstood the G-forces from it. Have you ever experienced anything like that? They call them AEPs. We call them UFOs. Have you ever experienced anything like that? Have you ever seen anything that was just unexplainable? Or do you believe that all of this is nonsense and perhaps is a phenomenon that is easily explained? That we're all just a little nutty and don't understand what we are seeing. I'd like to hear from you on that, given what they're talking about on Capitol Hill today. 1-800-859-0957. We welcome Aaron calling in from Highland today. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm good. This is a this is a judgment free zone because I've already I've already given my my experience (laughs) and there were there were no substances involved in mine. No, I absolutely believe in them. I have seen a couple in my lifetime and uh, it was just absolutely incredible. Um, Nothing that can be explained in any way that I can think of. I'm off. I, I absolutely well, believe in them. Explain to me what you saw that 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 you believe there wouldn't be an explanation for. What did it look like? Uh, the first thing that I saw was back. It was with my husband. I was we were dating at the time back in '79 or '80 in Livonia, and we were just kind of laying back outside in the summer, looking at the sky, and we saw in like a, a V shape, like these would fly, um, a series of bright green lights. Yeah, um, going at a, a steady pace for a little bit, and then all of a sudden they just disappeared. Um, what year was this? Not, I mean, that was about seventy nine or eighty. Yeah, for me it was. Then, it was uh, I can tell you, it was nineteen seventy eight. It was it was the spring of oh, seventy eight, and and I okay. saw the exact same thing, only that they were more gold than than than. Wow. Than greenish, and yes, it was like something flying in a V formation, and yet they kind of they went side to side, like they were pulsating side to side. Very yeah. weird. Uh, Louis is in Gross Point with some thoughts on whether this is real or imagined. Hello, Louis. Hi, guy. Uh, uh, good afternoon. Okay, so my I do work in the aerospace industry, and I definitely know the difference between a UFO and a bad clam. So, uh, but I was walking, and this was on Channel Four many years ago. Um, I was on Lakeshore Drive in the summer with a friend of mine uh, walking our dogs, and uh, this, yeah, 2009, and there was a glowing object that we stopped and watched on Lake St. Clair, and, and, and it was dark. It was about 10 o'clock, and it moved in a straight uh, 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 line, and then it hovered, and then it shot up at a 90-degree angle, and we were just stunned, and I said, you know, I, I said, There's, we have no technology that can pull. Uh, we're talking instantaneous acceleration, yeah. and I was so, um, uh, you know, befuddled with what I saw. I, my wife kind of um, uh, wasn't necessarily believing me, but I said I, I was with another friend of mine, so there were two of us, mm-hmm. and... Um, 
So what I saw moved at a lateral line and then shot up. I mean, we're talking instantaneous, like um, like in Star Trek or Star Wars, uh, you know, jump to light speed. Nothing I've seen in, in the technology in the aerospace industry has that capability. And so. you work, do you work in the aerospace industry? I do. I've worked at oh, it. So you've, yeah, you've seen this. And you also know what the limits of, of physics is in this instantaneous acceleration. Uh, certainly no human being could withstand the kind of G-forces that that would, uh, at least not what I saw. It was like a bolt of lightning that also stopped, made a, that made a turn of 90 degrees. You just don't see that. Louis, thanks for your uh, thanks for sharing your recollections. Appreciate it. Paul is in Newport with some uh, thoughts on this. Paul, good afternoon. In the summer of 73, I was living down in Indiana at the time. I was a college student. I looked up at the sky and saw a bolt just flying across the sky quickly, quickly. I wasn't sure what I'd seen, but it was reported on the local television news uh, the next day. Yeah, and you know, some of these some of these can be explained after the fact because there are in atmospheric conditions and things that are done. But you're right. They need to be investigated because there is a technology out there that's unknown. And there are some that are going to say this is a colossal waste of time. I understand why you might believe that, and I respect your beliefs. But the other side of it is, if there's technology out there we don't understand, don't we need to understand it in order to protect ourselves? Or at least investigate it. That'll do it for Pod Sui this week. For full interviews or anything else you might have missed, go to thegreatvoice.com. See you next time.